You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Bonjour à tous. Je m'appelle James Corbett et je suis canadien, mais malheureusement, je ne peux pas parler français. All right, my name is James Corbett. I am the editor, webmaster, founder, general man about town of CorbettReport.com. Uh, the tagline, Open Source Intelligence News, it's been in circulation since 2007. And today I'm going to be talking to you about a topic that's very important to me, I'm very passionate about, and I hope you will be at least a little bit passionate about after hearing my talk. So we'll judge how well I do based on your opinions. All right, the, uh, the talk is from Gutenberg to YouTube, the open sourcing of journalism. And let's start with a very, 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 very simple question, a deceptively simple question. What is a journalist? And I know there's a lot of journalism students in the crowd today, so I assure you this is not an academic question. This is not a rhetorical question. This is not a philosophical question. This is a very, very real question that has very real answers that are being worked out right now in a discourse that's taking place, perhaps most notably at this point in time in the United States, surrounding the, uh, the Edward Snowden case and the reporting on that case by journalist, journalist, Glenn Greenwald. And uh, I have a clip that highlights some of the discourse that's taking place right now in the American and Western media generally. Unless it doesn't play, in which case we won't watch it. It's not a black and white story. It's not a good and evil story. Glenn Greenwald thinks it is. Well, that's, that's the but point. That's exactly the point. First of all, Glenn Greenwald is not a journalist. He's an activist and portraying himself as a journalist. That's maybe another conversation but what we're having. I was really staggered that a United States congressman, the chairman of the House uh, Homeland Security Committee, actually could go on national television and make up an accusation literally fabricated out of whole cloth that I have threatened to uncover the names of covert CIA agents as a way of arguing for my arrest and prosecution inside the United States for the crime of doing journalism. The Guardian focuses on a detention at London's Heathrow Airport. The partner of one of its journalists who wrote about the U.S. National Security Agency's program of mass surveillance was held for nine hours under terrorism legislation before being released without charge. So what is a journalist? An activist? Can an activist be a journalist? Clearly not, according to the talking heads of the, the mainstream media in America, at any rate. Or can an activist be a terrorist? Well, apparently so, according to the UK. Well, uh, well, we'll see exactly what this all means. But I think one of the, the most interesting points at which this is having a real practical effect on what is uh, coming down the line is happening right now in the US Congress, where there's an interesting conversation going on around something called the Shield Law, which would allow, uh, basically allow journalists to protect their sources even in, against uh, US court intrusions trying to, to uh, find out the, the sources of journalists. But if you're going to ha hardwire something like that into law, then the question has to arise, what is a journalist? If journalists are protected by this law, then journalists have to be defined. We have to have a definition for this. And interestingly enough, yes, they are definitely working on this very question right now in the United States Senate, courtesy of people like Senator Dianne Feinstein. 
I've had long-standing concerns that the language in the bill as introduced would grant a special privilege to people who really aren't reporters at all, who have no professional qualifications whatsoever. The fundamental issue behind this amendment is, should this privilege apply to anyone, to a 17-year-old who drops out of high school, buys a website for $5, and starts a blog? Or should it apply to journalists, to reporters, who have bona fide credentials? This bill is described as a reporter shield bill, so I believe it should be applied to real reporters. Real reporters, not those 17-year-old bloggers, those people with the $5 websites. We have to keep them away from the hallowed shrines of journalism because, well, they might actually say things that go against the grain. So uh, as you can see, this is a question that has very real relevance. So I hope that we can at least approximate something approaching an answer today. It's not going to be the answer. In fact, as you see, uh, my answer is uh, definitely not going to be the final answer, but... At any rate, this is a real question with real answers that will be answered soon enough, and it will be answered by the likes of Senator Dianne Feinstein if we don't start participating in this conversation to start answering it for ourselves. So what is the first approximation that we can possibly give to this, the answer to this question, what is a journalist? Well, this is the age of the internet, so of course the first thing you do is you type in journalist into Google image search and you get this. So clearly this is a journalist. Um, the, the standard, uh, I don't know about other cultural contexts, but for a Canadian, yes, you think a journalist, you think the press badge and the hat and the, the notepad and 1930s gumshoe newspaper reporter or something like that. Um, but I, I don't want to be exclusive. Obviously, we're in France. So in the interest of research, I typed French journalist into Google image search. And the first image was a horrific image of two dead French reporters, so I don't want to look at that one. But the second image was this. So apparently this is what French people think when they think journalist. I don't know. I, don't, I have no idea who this is. All right, so. But this is a pretty poor approximation, obviously. So perhaps we can do a little bit better. But in order to start answering this question in a more serious way, I think we have to do... Uh, a history lesson. Sorry, I will not bore you to tears. I'll try not to bore you to tears, and we won't go into the sands of time or anything like that. But we do have to start somewhat far back in the picture to at least understand that what we understand of today as journalism didn't really exist in past times for very specific reasons. So, I mean, we could look back thousands of years to the time when scribes were really some of the only people who could actually read and write and who copied everything out longhand for distribution, personal copies for personal collectors or for libraries, Library of Alexandria or what have you. And this was obviously not conducive to anything approaching what we think of as journalism today. Um, at the very least, not in a written form. How could you possibly write out a newspaper by longhand? It doesn't work. So in this cultural context, what we think of as journalism didn't exist, couldn't exist. They couldn't even conceive of it existing. Um, moving right along. Of course, we have the, the town criers, the, the people who come out with the royal proclamations, hear ye, hear ye, banging a bell, and giving out news, as it were, from on high, from well, usually official proclamations from the city or from the, from the, uh, from the magistrate or whoever, who wants to, to uh, disseminate some piece of information. So this, I guess could be seen as a type of journalism, I guess. I mean, it's reporting on something that's happening, but still obviously not something that we really think of when we think of journalists today. And it's really not until about 1605, 
although you can obviously dispute the timeline here, but in the early 17th century that we start to develop something that looks like a modern-day newspaper. And this is what people um, generally agree is the first newspaper, although obviously there's room for... Uh, arguing over that definition, but this was uh, something I will not attempt to butcher the German name of this with my Anglophile tongue, but uh, we can just call it the Strasbourg Relations because the first word is relations and it was published in Strasbourg in 1605 uh, by Johann Carlus. So uh, this was what is often regarded as the first newspaper and uh, this was the, fir the longest, the oldest continually published language, uh, English language newspaper in the world. This is the Oxford Gazette better known as the London Gazette. It was originally the Oxford Gazette because at the time when it was first published, the court was in Oxford because of plague or something like that. It's currently known as the London Gazette. And basically, uh, this is the type of journalism that this was publishing. Um, here we have just a sample of the very first edition of the Oxford Gazette. Um, and I'm sorry I don't know the exact year of this. I, I thought I did have that, but anyway. Um, 17th century. And uh, we can see, for example, it says, November 7th, this day, the Reverend Dr. Walter Blandfor Blandford, warden of Waldham College in this university, was elected Lord Bishop of this see, vacant by his death of Dr. Paul, late bishop here. November 11th, this day, his majesty in council, according to the usual custom, having the role to sh of sheriffs presented to him, pricked these persons following to be sheriffs for the succeeding years in their respective counties of England and Wales. And it gives a list of names. This is roughly what was contained in that first edition of that first English language newspaper that we know of today, anyway. And, uh, and uh, again, this might, I guess we can construe this as some type of journalism. It is reporting on things that have been ongoing, and it is itemized by time, um, and it's a, a, it's a serial publication. It continued to come out after the publication of this first edition. So it is, it does correspond to what we think of, at least as a newspaper today. But still, not exactly the type of language that we would associate with uh, media or journalism today, even discounting the fact that it's in 17th century English. Uh, so moving along a couple centuries, we have the first news agency arising in 1835. It was in fact uh, a French AFP, which at the time was Agence Havas, uh, created by Charles Louis Havas in 1835. He had two employees, um, uh, uh, I forget their names, uh, Julius, Paul Julius Reuter and Bernard Wolf, who both went on to create their own news agencies. And then a few decades later, uh, those three news agencies basically cartelized news agencies in Europe and created kind of regional, a regional cartel. Uh, Havas was in charge of France and uh, Reuters in charge of the UK and, uh, and Wolf was in charge of Germany or what was Germany at the time. So that was, that was the creation of, of what we think of today as news agencies, where you have a, a centralized location where you have reporters reporting in from different locales in different, far off different places, and it collects and, and processes that information and then produces it. In the current context, that may be directly giving it to, out to people. You can go to the Associated Press website or what have you to, to get news. Or, of course, they sell it to different newspaper publishers or or in different contexts these days, obviously, with different media. But that all started in 1835. Um, and this is not actually a wire story, um, uh, not a news agency story, but it was a story that I think is representative of the journalism 
from the time. Um, this is from actually The Guardian in 1848, which had insurrection in Paris, which notes a sanguinary and obstinate insurrection has outbroken in Paris in consequence of the determination of the government to clear the atollers nationaux of the immense numbers of workmen who have homes supported at the expense of the taxpayers. This revolt has at last been quashed, but the fighting continued for four days and the combatants seem to have been animated with most obstinate fury. Torrents of blood have flowed, but the accounts are so various that it is impossible to state the number of killed and wounded. It's pretty exciting journalism, actually. Um, and at the very least, they, they admit at the end of that that they don't know how many people were killed and wounded, which is probably a, a lot more than you'd see on uh, CNN or the equivalent today, where they'd probably make some wild guess, no matter if it had any relation to reality. But this is what journalism looked, feel, tasted, and sounded like in the 19th century. And moving along a little bit, a few decades, we have the first newsreel coming up in 1908. Again, a French invention, Pathé News, um, which we, persisted for a long time. Of course, Pathé is still a company that's around today. Uh, they produced the very first newsreel back in 1908, and newsreels became a very common form of disseminating news and information back in the early part of the 20th century when motion pictures were still new and exciting, and everyone went out to the cinema and expected to see some sort of newsreel beforehand, whether hard-hitting journalism or not, and here's just a, a totally non-representative, randomly selected sample from, I believe, 1930 or so. Oh, no. Oh, no. Here we go. Girls, the American Olympic Games are only a few months away. And all this practice that you get in now and all these preliminary meets will determine whether or not you make the Olympic team. <laughs> America depends on these muscles for victory at the 1932 Olympiad. Ooh la la. Um. <laughs> So newsreels were not always exactly hard-hitting journalism, but as I say, I mean, there was serious newsreels as well. I mean, that's just an example of the form. So we can at least see some of the visual motif that is employed here, and we can sort start to construct a, a kind of visual narrative that, that, uh, that we can see that is used in a lot of newsreels, using close-ups and using um, moving, uh, moving shots and the like. So, so the type of language of cinema starts to become part of the language of journalism. Um, Moving on slightly, we have the first radio news broadcast in 1920 at a Detroit radio station called uh, that was under the call sign 8MK. It was owned by the Detroit News, a uh, happy bunch pictured here. Um, and radio news, of course, obviously took off from that point and became a very common way of disseminating news and information. And it had its own kind of paradigm with its own language and narratives. And it sounded... Something like this, which is a uh, broadcast, I believe, from CBS News. Um, again, I don't have that in my notes. But, uh, but we can listen and hear what radio news sounded like back several decades ago. Oh, unless I do that. The attack apparently was made on all naval and on naval and military activities on the principal island of Oahu. The president's brief statement was read to reporters by Stephen Early, the president's secretary. 
All right, so obviously referring to the attack on Pearl Harbor by the Japanese. Um, again, just uh, it gives us a glimpse into what radio news sounded like and the way that it was reported. Um, a very that was uh, coming obviously in 1940, uh, 41. Obviously, when radio news was starting to develop its own vocabulary and uh, starting to become um, sort of its own its own beast, as it, as it were. Um, television news, of course, uh, 1930, the first television news broadcast. Although it wasn't until about 1941 that we had the first regularly scheduled news program. Um, and again, television news, when it first came out, well, it had a, a very different sound, a diff different look, a different taste, a different feel than what it does today. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight's special features, the coming buyer's market in automobiles. Then a new department, the sports section. And finally, if we don't run fresh out of time, which quite likely we may, we'll have a piece on trade across the Iron Curtain in Europe. Now, your tomorrow morning's headlines tonight. All right, an exceptionally informal broadcast, the likes of which we would probably never see on any respectable, reputable mainstream television news network in this day and age, but... This is what it looked like in the very, very early days when they were still experimenting with the form and still developing the language of journalism in the television paradigm. Uh, and let's skip ahead to the next major innovation, 1980, online news. The very first newspaper to be available online was the Columbus Dispatch at dispatch.com, although it obviously wasn't dispatch.com back in 1980. It was uploaded to the CompuServe network based out of Columbus, and it was available for download um, to users of the CompuServe network at a blistering 300 words per minute. 300 words per minute, wow. And only $5 per hour for connection to this service. So, wow, just a revolution in, in news, I suppose. Um, perhaps it's no wonder that CompuServe didn't particularly take off, but at any rate, the idea certainly did. And at the risk of being unbelievably not humble, unhumble. I will, uh, <laughs> arrogant, let's use the word that I should. Um, I'll just give you an example of what online news looks like in this day and age, courtesy of, well, me. Unless I do that. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Welcome to your Sunday update for this 18th day of April 2010. And now for the real news. Making headlines this week, the World Health Organization appointed a group of so-called experts to investigate its own conduct in declaring an international pandemic emergency in the face of a remarkably mild H1N1 flu last year. On Monday, WHO Director General Margaret Chan appeared to call for an independent committee to review the WHO's own actions. We want a frank, critical, transparent, credible, and independent review of our performance, she said at the commencement of a three-day panel reviewing the affair. Hopes for such an independent review were quickly dashed when it was revealed that the proceedings would take place behind closed doors, that the supposedly independent group was in fact composed of the very people who had called for a declaration of pandemic in the first place, and that the panel was not interested in any wrongdoing on the part of the WHO or its advisors. Was I ever so young? 
All right. Um, yes. Okay. I, I, I give you this example. Um, this is, in fact, a, a series that I was doing a few years ago that I don't do anymore. But this is an example of the news that I was doing a few years ago. And I present it not as an example of cutting-edge, awesome online journalism, but as an example that I think exactly like the early television news broadcasts or the, the early newspapers or what have you, uh, people of a future era will look back at this and laugh at how ridiculous it is for many reasons, um, not only myself, but, but also because this is, I mean, this is a replication of the television news paradigm in, uh, in the online environment. Obviously, this is available on YouTube and on, through my own website, etc. But it's basically just the, the television news, isn't it? It's a man in a suit and a tie staring at the camera with the, you know, the, the, the image on the, the side and giving quotes, cutting away to, to quotes and things like this. This is the language of television news. So it is comfortable and understandable, I'm sure, for everyone who's used to that. But is this really what journalism is going to look like online even in a few years, let alone in a few decades, obviously not. Obviously, we're still developing a new language, a new paradigm, a new way of trying to present this information. So this is, I think, a laughable early attempt, but hey, it was sincere. And, uh, and who knows? I mean, it has, this broadcast has reached thousands of people around the world. So it's, uh, it's a strange age that we're living in, and I often reflect on that. So ultimately, the question then of, from all of this We've seen the changes, and we've seen the way that the language of journalism changes because of the different eras that, uh, that occur. But what is driving this change in journalism? And the answer has to be technological innovation. If we think about it, it was Johannes Gutenberg, the Gutenberg printing press, that brought us the idea, the, con the concept, the, the, the possibility of a newspaper. Obviously, newspapers were not possible in the time of copying things out longhand. Is someone going to copy a thousand copies of a newspaper and give them out to people? Of course not. It required the movable type printing press to create the newspaper. And without that invention, it wouldn't have even been conceivable to have something like a newspaper. And for extra bonus points, does anyone remember the first newspaper, 1605? Where was that published? Where was the movable type printing press invented? Strasbourg, yes, exactly. Okay, you get the idea. So, I, I, coincidence? Maybe. But, but I think that the idea, the idea evolving from the printing press to the newspaper is not a coincidence. That is absolutely something that we can see had to have happened in order for the newspaper to be conceivable. Um, similarly, the Telegraph uh, brings us the idea for news agencies. Now, this is an strictly uh, chronological. Um, the, the Telegraph was the first uh, Morse experiment was 1837. The Electric Telegraph Company didn't come along until 1846. If you'll remember, news agencies started on the scene 1835, but it didn't take very long for news agencies to obviously take this technology of the Telegraph and use it to expand and multiply what they're doing. It's so much easier, obviously, to have reporters in far distant places if they can just telegraph things back to, to the home office or the railroad or whatever it was at the time, however that information got. But think about that, how that process, how that technological process to a certain extent determines the language of the journalism. If you're telegraphing information from, from some place to another place, you're not going to be telegraphing lengthy, verbose, flowery language like what we were reading in the 1605 newspapers. 
obviously it's going to be curt. It's going to be to the point. It's going to be the type of journalistic um, narrative language that we are now pretty much accustomed to. And to a certain extent, I think you can argue that was a result of the technology that was at hand back in the 19th century. Um, motion picture, ca picture camera obviously made the newsreel possible. Uh, I think you know where this is going. The wireless radio made radio news possible. Uh, the television made TV news possible. And the internet or the personal computing revolution or networking or well, however you want to frame it, made online news possible. So this is what we're looking at, a technological change driving the, the change in journalism. So to the question that you've all been asking yourself since the beginning of this presentation, so what? Well, technological innovation leads to changes in our conception of journalism. Journalism itself is not some monolithic thing that's written in the stars. It is something, it's, a, it's a evolving, it's a fluid concept that responds to societal changes of various sorts, political, social, economic, but as an underlying basis, of course, the technological change that's, ch that's driving what journalism looks like, what it sounds like, how we present it to others. The distribution paradigm is ultimately what, what is underlying all of this. And so we come to the beginning of today's presentation, really. <laughs> Open source journalism is the next step in this innovation. That's my contention. So obviously the question is, what is open source journalism? And for a first answer, we can turn to the first appearance of the term open source journalism, which appeared in Salon.com in 1999 in an article that was describing uh, a, a Jane's Intelligence Review uh, writer who went on Slashdot to solicit basically crowdsource uh, an article that he was writing on cyber terrorism. He basically had a draft of an article and he crowdsourced it and got it critiqued. And then he reworked his article and rewrote it based on that critique from the Slashdot users. And he uh, compensated all of the users whose words he actually used. And so this, they wrote, uh, Salon.com wrote an article about this called Open Source Journalism. Um, basically, this is just collaborative journalism crowdsource journalism. This, I don't think this is really getting at the heart of what open source journalism is, though. Um, I think taking our cue from the open source software paradigm, obviously open source journalism is journalism that lets you look under the hood. It lets you see the source code of the journalism, and in the case of journalism, what is the source code? It's data. Um, it could be statements that are uh, made by officials. It could be laws that are being passed. It could be what have you, whatever it is, video that's, uh, that's been made available. Someone tweets out a, a picture of something. That might be part of the data. Um, but journalism that lets you see all of that underlying data that was used to compile the report, the, the report is obviously, that's a contributory factor to what we can think of as open source journalism. And the other part of this, of course, the permissive licenses that are, uh, that are used in a lot of online endeavors these days can also, of course, be applied to, I think, open source journalism. Journalism that users can remix, reuse, republish, and repurpose is, I think, an important part of what is the open source journalism revolution. So it's at least two-pronged. I'm sure there are many more prongs that we could think about, but let's use this as a first approximation. And, uh, and so let's look at an example of what is not open source journalism. Even though it's online, it's online journalism. This is the New York Times website, nytimes.com. And this was a randomly selected article from 1999. Uh, Congress passes wide-ranging bill easing bank laws. 
Uh, Congress approved landmark legislation today that opens the door for new era on Wall Street in which commercial banks, securities houses, and insurers will find it easier and cheaper to enter one another's businesses. The measure, considered by many the most important banking legislation in 66 years, was approved in the Senate by a vote of 90 to 8 and in the House tonight by 362 to 57. The bill will now be sent to the president, who is expected to sign it, Aide said. It would become one of the most significant achievements this year by the White House and the Republicans leading the 106th Congress. Today, Congress voted to update the rules that have governed financial services since the Great Depression and replace them with a system for the 21st century, Treasury Secretary Lawrence H. Summers said. <laughs> uh, this historic legislation will better enable American companies to compete in the new economy. The decision to repeal the Glass-Steagall Act of 1933 provoked dire warnings from a handful of dissenters that the deregulation of Wall Street would someday wreak havoc on the nation's financial system. <laughs> the original idea behind Glass-Steagall was that separation between bankers and brokers would reduce the potential conflicts of interests that were thought to have contributed to the speculative stock frenzy before the Depression. All right, again, this was a pretty randomly chosen article from the New York Times Archives nytimes.com, 1999. Do you notice anything about this article, stylistically? Do you notice any hyperlink anywhere in that text, anywhere, to anything? Hint, the answer is no. No, you don't. Because they don't. They don't link to anything. Nothing. Nothing whatsoever. Uh, and think of all of the op opportunities for linking to information that are embedded in this article when you look at it. Uh, Congress approved landmark legislation today. Show us the legislation. It's available online. Link to it so we can actually go read it for ourselves if we want. Um, there's a statement from Lawrence H. Summers. I bet you that's on some government website somewhere or there's a recording of it on some, some website somewhere. Why not link us to that? It talks about the Great Depression. Uh, the Great Depression, wow. The New York Times was publishing during the Great Depression. Wouldn't that be an incredible thing if they, I don't know, curated some of their articles from the Great Depression, created a link so that you can go and find out more and browse through the archives? Even if you want to stay on NewYorkTimes.com, there are obviously ways that they could do that and they could open up their journalism just a little bit so that you can actually go and see some of the underlying data of what they're talking about. <sighs> but... Never feared. New York Times is cutting-edge journalism, and they, they, they're on board with this online news thing. This is New York Times 2013, a randomly selected article from just the other day. This is an article about Obama picking a, a new uh, replacement judge for a U.S. Uh, District Court, Court of a Circuit of... Circuit Court, Court of Appeals judge or something. Nothing of any particular relevance. But look at this. Look at this block of text that's embedded halfway through the uh, article. Do you see it? Do you see it? I'll highlight it for you. Oh, they've learned how to hyperlink. Whoa! The New York Times has hyperlinked in one of their articles. It's unbelievable. Mr. Obama issued a statement saying blah, 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 and they link to the statement on whitehouse.gov. Oh, well, my work is done. I think I'm just going to stop my website and just give it up to the New York Times. So this is the, uh, the extent of how far New York Times has come in the last couple of decades. And I, I don't know, maybe I'm crazy. I think we could do a little bit better than this. 
Well, again, not to toot my own horn, but obviously the Corbett Report is my website. It's been in circulation on, online since 2007. Tagline is open source intelligence news. It's been that tagline since the foundation of the website in the about section of CorbettReport.com. I link to a Washington Times article from 2006 that notes that the CIA has an open source intelligence office, OSINT, which obviously Tom was talking about earlier today. And the, uh, the, the director of that OSINT center was talking about how these days most of the important information that the CIA gets is not from humans, it's not from James Bonds, you know, smuggling across the border and spying on people. It's not from SIGINT, it's not from the fact that they're listening to literally everything you say, do, and think, probably. Um, it's from open source intelligence, what they find online, what they find in books, TV, newspapers, and online and more and more significantly online. And I thought, hey, if it's good enough for the CIA, it's probably good enough for independent journalism. So open source intelligence news, that's where that comes from. And here's just an example. This is kind of the bread and butter of my website. It's my podcast, um, now up to 280 something or other episodes. This is an example of a recent episode. Uh, it's a half hour to one hour audio slash video documentary type exploration of a given subject. In this case, it was Rockefeller Medicine exploring the Rockefeller Foundation's role in creating our modern concept of medicine. And uh, you see the text, kind of the description and the link to the YouTube version for people who are still stuck on Google. And there you go. Underneath every single episode of my podcast, there's a documentation list. Every time I mention a document, every time I play a video or play a recording or what have you, I'll link to that in the show notes with the time index. So you hear it on the podcast, you go look at the time, you go look it up in the show notes. There it is. You can go read it for yourself. Because my entire premise is that I'm not really doing anything other than presenting my opinion that's been gleaned from this and this and this and this and this source. Go look it up for yourself and come to your own opinion. But if you value the work that I'm doing, then yeah, continue to listen. So, And of course, all of my work is created and uh, produced under a Creative Commons 2.5 uh, license. So basically, if it's for anyone to reuse, remix, republish, repurpose, provided non-commercial and uh, attribution provided. So that's what I do on my website, but again, by no means is this in any way cutting edge or, or anything like that. This is pretty basic stuff. I mean, hyperlinking is not exactly the most amazing use of the technologies. Obviously, what we saw earlier with Pierre is the type of tools that, uh, that can underlie something like this, but this is just what I'm doing. Um, another example of what could possibly happen, there's an uh, a important article from 2006 called A Fundamental Way Newspaper uh, Sites Need to Change. Um, an important article that Pierre links to on his website, and it goes into talking about how the idea of what a story, a news story is, can fundamentally change in this era of data, of raw data, that we can actually, instead of creating stories like narratives about what happened, we can actually create um, ways of interfacing with the data itself that help people to understand what's happening. And there are some examples that are given in there, but um, we'll skip over a deep analysis of that for now. Um, but, but suffice it to say, there are very innovative and interesting ways that the language and the shape and the form of journalism itself is changing right now, and what we think of as journalism right now will probably not be what people think of as journalism 10 or 20 years from now in ways that I can't even begin to speculate. I mean, I don't know what it's going to end up looking like, and I don't want to put myself out as a voice of authority. I think each and every one of us is an authority insofar as we're all contributors, or at least potential contributors, to this conversation trying to define what is journalism. So 
back to the question, what is open source journalism? We have the old paradigm where you have very few centers of distribution um, of information, these collective centers where, where all of this information comes in and they, they broadcast it out in various different ways. And of course, in that paradigm, if there's something that perhaps the, the people who own these big corporations that publish the news don't want you to know, well, they won't tell you it. Um, the new paradigm, of course, is this. It's user-to-user, peer-to-peer, um, people creating independent journalism for themselves, um, and again, exploring all of the incredible opportunities that lie at our fingertips, where now, as opposed to the scribes writing out things hand by hand, one at a time, we have literally access to more information in our hands than has ever been in the hands of any human in history before. <sighs> I get excited by that. I don't know about you. All right, so back to the question. What is a journalist? Well, that's a good question, and I don't want to cop out on the answer, but honestly, I really think that given what the, the changing concept of journalism that we've established, and given that the medium often determines the way that not only what journalism is, but what a journalist is, that looks different in every era of technological change, well, in this era of technological change, where everything is distributed, everything is available to the individual users, users can connect individually to one another, the answer to what is a journalist is you. You are a journalist. You are a journalist. I am a journalist. Everyone is at least potentially a journalist in this day and age. And that is a very important thing to keep in mind when the Senator Dianne Feinsteins and the like in the U.S. Senate and elsewhere are going to start really literally trying to define journalism in ways that exclude you and me and many other people from accessing this these hallowed halls of the protected walls of journalism we have to work vigorously to defy that to decry that and to absolutely go against that agenda to try to keep people out of what is considered journalism because we have to define it as ourselves and we have to become a part of the conversation rather than just listening to other people talk and on that note Thank you very much for your time and attention. I look forward to answering your questions. Introducing The Last Word DVD. For the first time on DVD, you can own all seven episodes from the first season of The Last Word video series, including The Last Word on Terrorism, you see, to Kissinger and the other adherents of the globalist ideology, terrorism is simply a word for any act that threatens the agenda of the globalists. The last word on CCTV. But there is something more fundamentally troubling about this entire CCTV surveillance grid than mere hucksterism. The last word on utopia. The most pernicious evil always presents itself as something necessary, something transitory, a mere waypoint on the road to the land of milk and honey. In this way, the masses can be led to not only tolerate the most intolerable conditions, but actually to support those who would seek to rule over them. And the last word on independence. It is a choice that we make each and every day to live in independence or in slavery. Every day is Independence Day. The Last Word DVD. Buy your copy today at CorbettReport.com.